Hey, uh, in preparation for uh, the message today, I asked my assistant to go out to the thrift store and uh, spend a few bucks. Find me a gaudy sport coat that doesn't look good on me, that doesn't fit. It's basically just awful, and I think she did a pretty good job, don't you think? <laughs> now, if you have the identical sport coat at, in your closet at home and you're very proud of it, and you go to dinner in it, to, like to Olive Garden and stuff, no offense intended, okay? And in fact, you can have mine if you'd like. Come up afterwards and I'll give it to you. I'm going to keep this on for a bit because it's going to help us understand some spiritual truth from God's Word this morning that we need to see today. So shield your eyes or whatever you need to do to stay focused. And the title of our sermon today is What Not to Wear, okay? And that's where we're going. If you have a Bible, turn to the book of Colossians chapter 3. That's where we find ourselves in our continuing study and journey through the book of Colossians. And you know that for a couple of months now, we've been reading somebody else's mail. But that's okay, because God meant for Paul's letter to the Colossians to be read by future generations. In fact, it was the Holy Spirit of God who actually wrote the words of this letter through the Apostle Paul and then made sure that they were included in the Holy Scriptures. And so the Lord has been teaching us many, many glorious things about himself and his gospel and salvation and about Christianity through our study of Colossians. Well, if you're with us back at the outset of this series, you might recall I mentioned that this letter is divided neatly into two parts. Do you remember that? Chapters 1 and 2 form one section. Chapters 3 and 4 form a second section. The first section is all about what God has done for us. The second session is about what we should do, how we should live in light of what God has done for us. Chapters 1 and 2 is truth to believe. Chapters 3 and 4 is truth to live. And when you think about it, this structure, this way that Paul structured this letter, first declaring what God has done, and then instructing his people how they must live, that is common to just about all of Paul's letters. Paul never begins his letters with what Christians should do. He always, always, always begins with what God has done for his people. And this is very important. Why? So that we understand that it is God's activity that prompts and energizes our activity for him. That is so important to understand. It's true. We find this in the Bible. For example, the Bible says, we love. Why? Because he first loved us. The Bible says, we forgive. Why? Because God in Christ has forgiven us. So Paul structures his letters this way to teach us that our obedience is prompted and motivated and animated and energized by God's gracious work in us and for us. Does that make sense? That is so important to understand. Now, there's a bridge between these two sections in Colossians. And it was the section that we studied last week, the first four verses of chapter 3. That's the bridge. We learned there that the beautiful reality that God has elevated his people to a brand new identity in Christ and that he has given us a new life, his life, eternal life. Christ is our very life. And what we're going to see today is that his life that resides in us, that beats in our breast, cries out to be expressed in our daily lives. 
That's what Paul turns his attention to in chapter 3. So if you haven't yet reached into your worship folder and pulled out that study guide, you can do so. Listen to the word of God as I read it, beginning in verse 5. Paul writes this, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these two, you once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word. If you've been with us all throughout this study so far, you should feel, as I read that, that something's changing here, that we're turning a corner. It sounds different, doesn't it? You feel the shift in responsibility? Paul is now telling Christians to do some things. Up to this point, it's pretty much been all about God's activity, God's work, what God has done for us in Christ. In the first two chapters, Paul contended that our acceptability to God is not based on our performance for him, but on Jesus' performance for him on our behalf. So I've said many times that our spiritual growth does not begin with behaving better, but it begins with believing better. Christianity is not about keeping rules. It's about having a relationship, a consuming relationship with Jesus Christ. So now, when you hear the verses that we just read in in chapter 3, I'm wondering if you might be a little confused. Wait a second. This sounds like rules. I thought Christianity wasn't about rule-keeping and legalism, but here's Paul telling us that we should stop doing some things. I'm a little bit confused. Well, I have a compelling desire to help all of us understand that there is a big difference between religious rule-keeping on the one hand and obeying gospel commands, grace-driven effort on the other hand. They are different, really different. A number of people have helped me understand the differences better. Take a look at the table that I've put for you on your outline there. Let's see if we can get clear on how this is different than religious rule-keeping. First, Legalistic rule-keeping, religious rule-keeping, is obeying to earn God's acceptance, while gospel-driven obedience is because you already have God's acceptance. Do you see the difference? Big difference. Legalistic rule-keeping is motivated by guilt, fear, or duty. Gospel-driven obedience is motivated by gratefulness for what God has done and by love for Him. In legalistic rule-keeping, you have to. (laughs) You've got to grind it out. But in gospel-driven obedience, you want to. Keeping the rules is attempted in fleshly effort, but gospel-driven obeying is produced by grace. God's grace that is at work in you and is energizing you and fueling your efforts. We all know that legalism can put you on the performance treadmill and can be exhausting, can wear you out. How many de-churched, over-churched Christians are there who've said, I'm done, you know, I can't, I couldn't do it. Exhausting. But gospel-driven obeying should be enriching to our souls and fueling a deeper desire 
to love and obey Christ. Legalistic rule keeping, you know this, glorifies self. It's all about trying to look spiritual, trying to impress people, trying to uh, acquire the praise of men. But gospel-driven obeying is about glorifying Jesus Christ, making him look great, making him look worthy of obeying. Rule keeping uses people. Grace-driven effort loves people. Rule keeping can't change the heart. We saw that. It just works on the behavior. It's a behavior modification. It doesn't change the inside. But gospel-driven obedience arises from a changed heart. It's evidence of genuine salvation. Whereas legalistic rule keeping is just, an, there's no, it's just human effort. It arises from an unregenerate heart. Rule keeping is devoid of gospel truth. Gospel-driven obedience is fueled by gospel truth. Legalistic rule-keeping attempts to curb external behaviors, deal with the fruit only, but gospel-driven obedience gets to the root, the heart motivations, the desires. Under legalism, commands are viewed as restraints that God imposes on us to limit our happiness. But in the gospel, we view commands as reflections of the very heart of God. They arise from his character. When you break the rules in legalism, when you disobey, it leads to condemnation, shame, and hiding. We know that, doesn't it? But in the gospel, when you fall short, when you disobey Christ, it brings repentance and gratitude for being forgiven and cleansed and grace-generated resolve to obey Christ out of love. See, we know the New Testament contains many, many commands telling Christians how to live. We're not debating whether or not Christians should obey Christ. Of course we should obey Christ. That's not the point. The point is what motivates our obedience? Where does the desire and the power to obey come from? And Paul's answer to that question is always the same, the gospel. (laughs) It comes from the gospel. That's one reason why Paul regularly reminded Christian people of the gospel of Christ. He knew that when believers deeply embrace the gospel and believe it, when they get the gospel down in their bones, it produces in them the desire and the power to live the kind of holy life that is worthy of the gospel. You know what? In our church these days, I'm seeing more and more and more of you getting this. I can see it in your eyes. And I thank God for that. But if this way of thinking still seems kind of weird to you, that's okay. Let's just keep going on this journey together. Let's just keep asking the Holy Spirit to open our eyes so that we see what he wants us to see. Now in our section today, there's one primary message, and it's for Christians. One overarching theme in today's passage. It's direct, it's black and white, it's shooting straight, it's loud and clear. Here is Paul's gospel-prompted command. Christian, stop tolerating sin in your life. Stop tolerating sin in your life. Kill it. Get rid of it. If there are sins that are still hanging around from your old life, get them out of your life. And this is not some rare, unique command Stop sinning and live a holy life is an oft-repeated command given many times in both the Old and the New Testament to God's people. 
Be holy as I am holy. Go and sin no more. Those are common refrains in the Bible for God's people. Notice how Paul phrases it here in this passage. He uses two metaphors to get his point across. In verse 5, he says, Put to death what is earthly in you. Put it to death. This speaks of violent execution. Kill it. Commit murder. Kill the sin that's hanging on to you in your life. Put it to death. And then the second metaphor, verse 8, put them all away. And this is a term in the original that's, that's the language of removing an outer garment, take it off, cast it off, and put it away from you. That's the idea here. Get rid of it. Rid yourself of these sins that are still clinging to you from your old life. That's not you anymore. It doesn't look good on you anymore. So cast it off. I think these two phrases tell us so much about the nature of sin and its relationship to believers in Christ. Kill it. Put it away. It tells us this, that although believers have died to sin, sin is not dead. In telling us to kill sin, what's Paul saying? Sin is still alive, has to be killed, has to be put to death. It's still alive, it's still hanging around. You know this in your life. Sin is still there, it's still present. Yes, our legal obligation to serve our old master has been ended, it's been terminated by Christ. But sin still hangs around, doesn't it? You find this in your life? You're still tempted to sin? Does sin still offer the promise of pleasure if you'll just cave in? Sure it does. has to be executed, killed. These phrases also tell me that old sinful patterns don't die easily. They have to be forcibly put to death, forcibly removed and cast away. As the old Puritan pastor Richard Baxter wrote, kill sin before it kills you. Before it kills you. You know, Defeating sin in your everyday life is a fight, isn't it? I mean, it's a fight. In fact, one way you can know that you're a true believer is if you have an inclination to fight against the sin that you feel rising up in your heart. You know, non-believers aren't much inclined to put up a fight. But true Christians do. They fight against sin. And I want to tell you that even if you feel, even if you don't feel these days like you're winning that battle against sin, can I tell you that you can still take heart that God has given you the desire and the inclination to fight against it, even if you don't feel like you're winning these days? That desire to fight is an indication that you're a believer in Christ. God's put that in you. Third thing I notice from these two phrases that is that sinful patterns can be killed. I mean, he gives a command here. The presumption is that these commands can be obeyed. They can be killed. Sin from the old life can be cast off through the power of the gospel. These commands can be obeyed. Sins in your life and mine can be put to death, can be discarded by the power of the Holy Spirit who indwells us and lives within us. You've got to believe that. You can beat the sin that's clinging to you, that's hanging on by the power of the Holy Spirit. Listen to Romans 8.13. For if you live according to the flesh... You will die. 
I think that's talking about God's discipline in the life of a Christian. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Now, in this section, Paul gives two lists of sins, two sin lists. And we're going to look at those a little bit later on. But right now, I want us to see what Paul appeals to in telling us to kill sin. The incentives that will motivate us to fight hard and strangle it to death. And there are several. I like to call them gospel-powered motivations for getting rid of sin. And there are several of them. First thing he says is this. Rid yourself of sinful desires and behaviors because, first, a sinful lifestyle is inconsistent with your new life and your new identity. And notice how he starts out in verse 5. Put to death, what's the next word? Therefore, which points us back to what he wrote in the first four verses of this chapter. We looked at those last week. said, if you then have been raised with Christ, seek those things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on things on the earth, for you died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Therefore, put sin to death in your life. This is so important to understand. This is what distinguishes grace-driven effort from legalism, from rule-keeping. He's saying, in effect, you're united with Christ. You died with him. You were buried with him. You were raised with him. You've been elevated to a higher plane. You have the very life of God beating in your breast. The Jesus life. So that being the case, letting sin dominate your life is incompatible with your new life. It's out of sync with the risen life that you've been given. Listen, listen. You don't have to try and live up to something you're not. You simply need to live up to who you already are. Do you understand that? To who God has made you in Christ. He's given you a new identity. He's elevated you to a high place. He's given you his life. Be who you are. That's what he's saying. That's so good, isn't it? And so that first incentive is a very positive one. The second one, not so much. What does it say in verse 6? On account of these, these sins, the wrath of God is coming. Ah, yes, here we see that wildly popular doctrine of the wrath of God. You know, many people would prefer not to hear about this, right? It, the wrath of God offends the sensibilities of the modern, sophisticated mind. Plus, it appears to be at odds with the notion that God is love. But is it really? Are the wrath of God and the love of God really mutually exclusive? Can we talk about this for a minute? You know, one thing about preaching through a book of the Bible is that when you come to to a hard topic, you can't really sidestep around it without it being obvious that that's what you're doing. And so we're going to look at this. What is the wrath of God anyway? Let's, let's define it first. Wayne Grudem in his systematic theology wrote this, God's wrath means that he intensely hates all sin. 
God hates sin. Would you say that with me? God hates sin. We need to teach our children that God hates sin. That's what the wrath of God is. God's wrath directed at sin, he wrote, is therefore closely related to God's holiness and justice. John MacArthur writes this, Wrath is God's constant, invariable reaction to sin. Now, this is kind of extra, okay? This is free. And I'm going to, I'd like to offer you five observations about the wrath of God from my study of Scripture. So if you want to find some white space on your outline there, I encourage you to write these things down. Number one, God's wrath is righteous. Unlike your wrath and mine, most of the time, God's wrath is righteous. It flows from his holiness, his holy character. Psalm 711 reads this way, God is a righteous judge, a God who expresses his wrath every day. Now, you won't find that on any coffee mugs or written on some plaque in somebody's entryway. Nevertheless, it's true. It only makes sense that a righteous God must hate evil, right? I mean, it just makes sense. It's who he is. And he said, I am who I am. He loves righteousness. He hates sin. God's wrath is righteous. Number two, God's wrath is deserved. Deserved. Sin earns the wrath of God. Did you know that Ephesians 2.3 declares that all people are by nature children of wrath? Now, this is not a new teaching. The Church of Jesus has believed this for two millennia. Humans are not born into this world morally neutral or morally innocent. The Bible declares that Adam's sin was imputed to all of his descendants. Plus, we all inherited our ancestors' sinful, rebellious disposition towards God. And so theologians would say humans are sinners by nature and by choice. Therefore, we are doubly deserving of God's righteous wrath in judgment. Romans 1.18, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. So God's wrath is righteous. God's wrath is deserved. Third, God's wrathful judgment is coming. That's what Paul wrote here. On account of these sins, the wrath of God is coming. You're probably familiar with the 19th century London preacher named Charles Spurgeon. He wrote this. This wrath of God is being delayed for a time, and consequently men and women do not think much either of the wrath that now is or of the coming wrath, but it will not, however, always be delayed. The floodgates of God's wrath will one day be opened and the awful torrents will come pouring out and will utterly overwhelm everyone exposed to their fury. This coming wrath will in part fall upon men and women at their death, but more fully at the day of judgment and it will continue to flow over them forever and ever and ever. Every funeral that I'm privileged to preach, I always include Hebrews 9.27, for it is appointed unto man to die once, but after this, the judgment. You know, if you read the book of Revelation, you'll find that much of it is about the coming judgment of God on sinful people. Wrath is coming. Revelation 6.15, listen to what's coming. Then the kings of the earth and the great ones... (laughs) 
and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne from the wrath of the lamb for the great day of their wrath has come and who can stand? God's wrath is coming. And if you're squirming a little bit right now, you should be. As we think about this, judgment day is coming because of the accumulated sins of humanity for generations. That's why Paul says here, because of these sins, the wrath of God is coming. But let's get to number four. The wrath of God was poured out on Christ. It was poured out on Christ. You see, the more you understand and accept the truth of God's wrath, the more precious the gospel will be to you. It's true. One reason there's not a wider love for the gospel in our world is that most people refuse to accept the doctrine of God's wrath. It's offensive to them. But if you deny the wrath of God, then Jesus dying for our sins and rising from the grave kind of loses some of its potency, doesn't it? Why did our sins need died for? The holy wrath of God answers that question. Again, Grudem writes this, As Jesus bore the guilt of our sins alone... God the Father, the mighty creator, the Lord of the universe, poured out on Jesus the fury of his wrath. Jesus became the object of the intense hatred of sin and vengeance against sin, which God had patiently stored up since the beginning of the world. Martin Luther wrote that Jesus hanging on the cross became the absolute most despicable human being who has ever lived, and God poured out his wrath on his son And that's why for centuries Christians have rejoiced that Jesus bore the wrath of God in our place. We sing about that, don't we? We rejoice in that. Kind of as an aside, by the way, if you've ever read the Bible and seen this big word propitiation, not like a word you use at the dinner table, probably, that's exactly what that word means. Propitiation means to remove wrath, to divert wrath away from its object. The propitiation is a sacrifice that bears God's wrath to the end and in so doing changes God's wrath into favor towards us. Romans 3.25 and 26 tells us that God set forth Jesus as a propitiation for our sins. Telling us that God acted in history to solve his own dilemma. Say, what was that? God's dilemma was this. How can I display my grace by saving sinful people while at the same time being true to my holiness. That's the problem that the cross was meant to solve. God, as a holy God, could not just overlook sin. It had to be punished, so he sent Jesus. He set him forth, it says, as a propitiation to remove his wrath. Listen to me. I love what John Piper says about this. Listen, this is deep, okay? Every non-wrath day that you experience or that your unsaved neighbor experiences, every day that you can get up and see a new sunrise, get a hot cup of coffee, every day that your kids hug you or your spouse embraces you, every day that you do not wake up in hell is a gift of grace purchased for you by Jesus Christ on the cross. Did you know that? Every day that your unsaved neighbor wakes up not in hell, is a day of grace purchased for him by Jesus Christ on the cross. No wonder Christians sing amazing grace. How sweet the sound. 
truth is none of us deserves any of the love and grace and mercy that God gave us in Christ. Jesus bore the brunt of God's holy wrath against us so that we wouldn't have to bear it. Jesus took God's wrath so that God could pour out his mercy on those who believe in Christ. That's the fourth truth. The fifth one is this. This is interesting. God can be both wrathful towards sin and loving towards people simultaneously. He can be both wrathful and loving at the same time. The closest thing I think that we have to understanding this is probably with our kids. When your kid does something that ticks you off and you are wrathful towards them, but at the same time, it's your kid, right? You love them. Closest, probably, we can get to that. D.A. Carson wrote this. God's wrath is not an implacable, blind rage. However emotional it may be to him, it's an entirely reasonable and willed response to offenses against his holiness, but at the same time, his love wells up amidst his perfections. Thus, there's nothing intrinsically impossible about wrath and love being directed towards the same individual or people at the same time. God in his perfections must be wrathful against his rebel image bearers, for they've offended him. And God in his perfections must also be loving towards his rebel image bearers, for he is that kind of God too. Do you get this? He can be both. Truth is, we should probably rejoice that our God is wrathful towards sin, because that is evidence that he's truly good. You know, when you love someone, then you're angry towards anything that would threaten the well-being of the loved one, right? Love presupposes hate. They go together. And so I would say, if you're here today and you have yet to believe the gospel, if you've not yet come to that point in your life where you saw your sin for what it was doing to God, you've never repented of your sins and transferred your trust from yourself to that sacrifice of Christ on the cross for you, if that's you, then the scripture gives a very clear promise and a very ominous warning in John 3.36, the words of Jesus himself. Listen, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, for the wrath of God abides on him. And so, as a pastor, that's you today, I plead with you. Repent of your sins. Believe the gospel. Turn to Jesus Christ. Believe the good news that Jesus came to this earth, took on that robe of human flesh, lived the perfect life that you could never live, and then was executed, died on an old rugged cross to pay for your sins. And then God the Father raised him from the grave to show that he was satisfied with that payment. It's enough! And to prove that Jesus was who he said he was. God was satisfied by Jesus' death. You know, you can do nothing to add anything to Jesus' finished work. It's perfect, it's complete. Turn from your sin and believe the gospel and you will be delivered from the wrath to come. As 1 Thessalonians 5, 9 says, For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, whether we're living or die, we might live with him.
Man, that's good news. That's good news. All right, I was kind of off on a trail. I'm coming back now. Paul is seeking to motivate Christians to get rid of the sin in their lives, to put some effort into killing the sin that's hanging on from the old life. And so he's giving some motivations. First, a sinful lifestyle is inconsistent with your new identity. doesn't match. Second, why would you want to continue in sinful behavior when sin is what incites God's wrath, when sin is what nailed Jesus to the cross? Why would you want to continue in it? Third, gospel motivation. Sin is what characterized the old life that you died to. Verse 7, in these two you once walked when you were living in them, your B.C. days before Christ, but now you must put them all away. I'm giving you more Charles Spurgeon today than I usually do. But listen to this. It's in Old English, so you're going to have to listen carefully, okay? Here's what he wrote back in the 1880s. Christian, what hast thou to do with sin? Hath it not cost thee enough already? Burnt child, wilt thou play with the fire again? What? When thou hast already been between the jaws of the lion, wilt thou step a second time into his den? Hast thou not had enough of the old serpent? Did he not poison all of thy veins once? And wilt thou play upon the hole of the asp again and put thy hand upon the den a second time? Oh, be not so foolish. Did sin ever yield thee any real pleasure? Didst thou find solid satisfaction in it? If so, then go back to thine old drudgery and wear the chains again if it delight thee. But inasmuch as sin did never give thee what it promised to bestow, but deluded thee with lies, be not a second time snared by the old fowler. Be free, and let the remembrance of thy ancient bondage forbid thee to enter the net again. It's pretty good, isn't it? Wise. Let me put it in modern parlance for us. That's the old life, dude. Get rid of it. Sleeping around, having all kinds of sexual partners, fanning your sexual passions into flame, stirring up lust, living for the moment, wanting what everybody else has. That's the old life. Did you forget how empty it left you? Do you really want to go back to that? Really? Jesus cut you free from that post. Do you want to go back and hit yourself up again? Does that really make sense? In Christ, the old you died. So scrape off the old residue from the old life that's still clinging to you and get rid of it. That's what he's saying. Get rid of it. Fourth gospel motivation, briefly, is this. Sin distorts the image of God in us. Did you know the Holy Spirit of God is forming the character of Christ in you if you're a Christian? That's what he's doing. He's renewing you, it says, after the image of your creator. And so Paul's saying, cooperate with that work. Cooperate with the Holy Spirit. When you slip back into the old patterns, you are working at cross purposes with the Holy Spirit of God. Do you really want to work against the Holy Spirit in your life? you really want to do that? In his efforts to form Christ in you? And then the last motivation I see here, verse 11 Apparently there was some racism in that church, some bigotry. 
say it this way, sinning against each other is inconsistent with the unity, the gospel-generated unity that exists in the body of Christ. Back in that church, people from different backgrounds, different ethnic backgrounds, were coming to Christ, and they were struggling to shed their caricatures of each other and view each other as brothers and sisters in the Lord. They were struggling with that. Does that still go on today? In the church of Jesus Christ, does it happen? Well, sure it does. Sure it does. But it shouldn't. Because as he says, Christ is all and he is in all. In Christ, all are one, united together in a body where earthly distinctions are fading away. Skin color, ethnic background. As Paul wrote elsewhere, from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. We don't judge people by their skin color anymore, by their external appearance. We don't do that. He said we did it with Christ and we got it all wrong. And so let me see if I can summarize all of this up. The gospel command in this passage is to do what? To kill sin. To get rid of sin. Get rid of that sin, sin that continues to cling to our lives. Why? Because of what believing the gospel has accomplished in us and for us, giving us a new life and a new identity, Christ is our life, and because the gospel tells us the truth about sin and what it does to God and what it does to us and to others. In a few moments, we're going to honor Christ and his sacrifice by partaking of the Lord's table together. In preparation for that, I want us to take a few moments and take a pretty brief look at the two lists of sins that we see here so that we can get clean of these. Did you know there are sin lists in the Bible? Doesn't that just bless you and encourage you to know that? Mark chapter 7, Galatians 5, Revelation 21, 1 Corinthians 5, right here in Colossians 3. Lists of sins so that we wouldn't be in the dark. We've seen that Jesus died to pay for our sins and set us free from being dominated by sins like these. But let me ask, are are these sins still in your life? Are they in your heart? Well, I see two categories of sins in this passage that Paul refers to. And I guess if you're going to be serving communion in a few moments, go ahead and get ready for that. Two categories of sins. Sins of fleshly desire and sins of anger. Sins of twisted, distorted love and relationship sins of bitterness and hatred. Let's notice the first list. It's interesting to me that in naming these sins, Paul starts with the outward, with behavior, and he moves to the heart. He he starts with the visible fruit and moves to the root. Colossians 3.5, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Here it is. Sexual immorality. Sexual immorality is a sin. The word in the original language was pornea. Interesting, huh? It's a very broad term. It refers to all sexual activity outside of marriage. So, if you're here today and you're sleeping with your girlfriend, that is pornea, that is sin. That's what God hates. That's why the wrath of God is coming. That's what nailed Jesus to a cross. If you're sleeping with your girlfriend or boyfriend... That's sexual immorality. If you're married to someone and you're having sex with someone else, that's pornea, that's sexual immorality. That's sin. God hates sin. Paul says, kill it. Put it to death. 
Get it out of your life. Then he says impurity. And really that's a word that refers to sensual thoughts, words, deeds. Just think of just about every evening sitcom on TV. Impurity. Next word is passion. It's a deep word. It it refers to just out of control desire for sex. Just out of control. Can't stop. Next word, evil desire, that's the impulsive craving to feed sexual appetites. It's all you think about. It's dominating your life. Covetousness, the next one is, we know what that is. That's a a strong desire for what God has forbidden. Got to have it. And then he gets to the root. Covetousness, which is what? What does it say? Idolatry. We've talked a lot about idolatry around here. Idolatry is simply treasuring anything else above God. Worshiping something else or someone else or yourself above God. Did you know that Martin Luther declared that idolatry is at the root of all sin? He said that if you find yourself breaking the other nine commandments, it's because you've already broken the first commandment have no other gods before me. They all arise from that. That's idolatry, treasuring something or someone more than God. And to these sins, Paul says, put them to death. Hack them to pieces. Get violent. Like Jesus said, if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. Those are figures of speech. Do not go out and cut your hand off. What was he saying? Go to extreme measures. To keep from sinning. Kill them. Then there's this second list. Has more to do with bitterness and hatred in relationships. And here he starts with inside the heart and he moves to behavior. From root to fruit. Verse 8. Put all of these away. Anger. Anger. That's burning, smoldering resentment. Simmering hostility. Do you know any angry Christians? Angry at their spouse, angry at their ex, angry at their boss, angry at their kids. Paul said, take it off. It doesn't look good on you anymore. It doesn't match up with the new you, with your new identity. Cast off anger. Next one is wrath. This is not the pure, holy wrath of God. This is our wrath. (laughs) Selfish. This refers to anger that boils over, outbursts of rage. Just, ah, lashing out. Kind of like that, but a little more intense, probably. (laughs) Then there's malice. That's when this thing is rising up in you, and now you're planning, now you're plotting how you can get back, how you can hurt them, how you can injure them. So you're going to withhold something from them, right? Because I'll show them. Or you're going to hurt them. Then slander, now it's starting to come out the mouth. This is tearing other people down with words. There's this person over here, but you're talking to these people over here about that person, and you're painting them in a negative light so that they look bad and you look better. That's slander. Character assassination. And then there's obscene talk. This is foul-mouthed, verbally abusive attacks with profanity and vulgarity. Now it's coming out, it's pouring out. Paul said, this doesn't look good on you anymore. This is, this, this is like this. It's outdated. It's 
from the old life, doesn't fit you, doesn't look good on you, get rid of it. Get it out of your life. Then there's lying. Oh, we know what this is, right? Concealing the truth, holding it back. We're telling a partial truth, just enough so you still look good. We're denying the truth or twisting it or making promises that you have no intention of keeping. We're spreading lies about somebody else. And then divisiveness. I get this from verse 11. This is creating disunity. This is pitting people against each other to stir stuff up. Some people are just not happy unless they're stirring stuff up. You know anybody like that? Paul said, look, this is sin. This is wicked. This is the old life. This is why Jesus got nailed to a cross. This is why the wrath of God's coming. This doesn't look good on you anymore. Get rid of it. Get it out of your life. Church, God's wrath is leveled at sins like these. God hates these sins, especially when his people tolerate them in their hearts and lives. Jesus Christ died for these sins. He purchased our right and ability to be free from them. He's given us his life, given us his life. Going back to the old ways, the old pattern should be unthinkable for us. So let me ask, why do you persist in your sin? You could ask me, why do you persist in your sin? Why do you hold on to it? Why do you feed it? Why do you tolerate it? What lie are you believing? What is Satan whispering into your ear? Everybody else is doing it? You'll never be found out? It's not really that big a deal. It is a big deal. Big enough that God sent his son to suffer and die to pay the penalty for your sins and for my sins. So, put it to death, cast it off. How do you go about dealing harshly with sin? Here's where we'll finish. Beyond that, how can our efforts towards holiness arise from God's grace and not devolve into just rule-keeping and legalism. Well, here's a gospel pathway for you to consider. Name it. Name your sin. See, if the Holy Spirit's speaking to you today, it's about one or two things. It's not about a hundred things. He's not going to overwhelm you. That's the enemy telling you you're a loser, you're a sorry excuse for a Christian. That's the accusations of Satan. Broad generalities that you can't do anything about. But when it's the Holy Spirit, he's pointing out this thing. He wants you to name it and admit it, and confess it. There's power in confession. See Jesus in your mind. See Jesus in the garden agonizing over the prospect of wearing your sin. See him hanging on the cross, suffering and bleeding and dying to pay for your sin. That's the gospel of it. See the Father's wrath decimate his son instead of decimating you. See Jesus separated from his Father because of the sin that you're cherishing in your heart and then turn from it, amen? Turn from it. Become disgusted with your sin. You ever been disgusted? Like, what the heck? Resolve by the power of the Spirit to drive it out of your life, to starve the flesh and feed it no longer. Shrink that appetite that's dominated your affections and do this, Cultivate such an appetite for Jesus that you lose a taste for sin. As 
Piper says in his book, Desiring God, I know of no other way to triumph over sin long term than to gain a distaste for it because of a superior satisfaction in Jesus. He's right. I've had days, some weeks, maybe even a season of a month or so where, where sin was distasteful to me. And it wasn't because I got up every morning saying, I got I to stop doing bad stuff. It was because I was so enthralled and enamored with what Jesus was doing in me and in you that I just lost taste for it. That's where God wants to get us. So caught up in Jesus Christ that sin looks disgusting. Like, why, why would I go there? Why would I do that? And so now we come to a time of celebrating communion together, the Lord's table. Would you bow your heads with me? Would you bow your heads with me? Couples and pairs are going to be taking a place around the perimeter of the room and also our prayer partners are going to come and Take a place and be available to pray with you in just a moment. Maybe you say, Steve, I'm struggling with sin in my life. I'm struggling with it. Well, take heart. At least you're struggling. At least you're fighting against it. That's a good sign. If you are struggling with sin, I would encourage you to come and pray with one of our prayer partners that they could just pray God's grace into your life, his energizing grace and courage to kill this stuff and get it out of your life. Come and be prayed for. There's power in naming it and confessing it. If you're not yet a believer in Jesus Christ, if you're not yet a Christian, I would encourage you to not partake of the Lord's table until you come to that point where you repent of your sins and believe in the sacrifice, receive Jesus And maybe some of you, that's happened today. Maybe faith is rising in your heart and sin is growing disgusting and you're embracing Jesus Christ. Then come and partake and then go to a prayer partner and tell them, hey, today was my first day to take communion as a Christian. It'd be awesome. Let's be clean before the Lord before we come. Father God, thank you for speaking to us through your word, even the hard stuff. May your spirit give us the grace to take it to heart. Cleanse your people now as we confess before you, as we repent, as we name our sins, as we turn away from them, as we embrace Christ in a new way. May the broken body and shed blood take on new preciousness to us as we are cleansed before coming to your table this morning. We worship you now. In Jesus' name, amen.